Um, this is the first time I've been at the Institute for World Politics. I have no idea its facilities were as lovely as, uh, as, as they are, especially this room. It's, it's rare that I ever get this nostalgia for being back in Oxford at one of the seminar rooms, but this is about as, especially with the leaded windows, about as close to it as, 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 as it gets. Uh, Georgetown is a great university, but any of you have been to some of its classrooms? I think they're nearly as regal as this. Uh, so I'm especially pleased because I decided, rather than give the kind of off-the-cuff book tour, I know Aaron said that he was bringing his class here, I decided to give a serious presentation, which befits this room, so I hope I guessed right. And what I tried to do with putting this presentation together was um, touch on some of the key themes of the book, or especially some of the material, and then really stretching, trying to put it in the context of events this past summer, but also the, event, the tragic events in New York on Tuesday. So what I've tried to do in this paper, and the reason I'm going to read it too is because I, otherwise it would be completely incoherent, because I want to cover the current uh, and future states of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and the role that social media has played in sustaining one and catapulting the other to prominence. And those of you who may be familiar with the second, well, first and second editions of Inside Terrorism, the first edition had a chapter, Terrorism in the Media. It was 1998, and the media was fairly obvious. It was television, radio, and print. The 2006 edition actually had two chapters devoted to terrorism in the media. It had terrorism in the old media, which was those 20th century manifestations, and then a new chapter that focused on the internet. There's not a third new chapter in the current edition of Inside Terrorism on the media, but one of the reasons for its waistline expanding, of course, is the emergence of social media that has had such a profound effect, as I will try to put in context and explain in this paper. And bits and pieces of this are from, from the book, I mean, the crux of it is, but I've tried to also, I mean, gosh, the book was published uh, in, uh, in August, I actually finished writing it in August 2016, and I turned in the proofs in February 2017, so I don't think very much has changed, but nonetheless, what I've tried to do in this paper is just update it uh, 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 a little bit. And it's even the old-fashioned way, without PowerPoint, I'm going to read it, so I, hope it's, I, hope I, I do it with a kind of verve and brio that doesn't have you all sleeping. Light up the fire on the flowing crowd. Pour grenades on the crusader's head. Don't have mercy until he's broken. This was the encrypted message that a Moroccan-born ISIS operative in Italy received from his commanders in the Middle East via WhatsApp last year. Although Italian authorities, although the Italian authorities were able to thwart the series of attacks planned for that country, their French, Belgian, Turkish, German, Swedish, British, and American counterparts have been tragically less successful in preventing the succession of bloody, ISIS-inspired or directed incidents that have convulsed Europe and the United States since 2015. Indeed, according to one compilation, ISIS to date has carried out at least 150 attacks in over two dozen countries that, excluding the ongoing carnage in Syria and laterally in Iraq, have claimed the lives of more than 2,000 persons. There was a time, not so long ago, when the conventional wisdom was that ISIS's violence would somehow remain confined to the perennially 
volatile, and bloody Levant in Iraq. That wishful thinking was swept aside on November 13, 2015, by the biggest terrorist attack on a Western city in over a decade. With no advance warning, and in defiance of the prevailing analytical assumption that ISIS wasn't even interested in mounting external operations, and indeed lacked the capability to do so, six simultaneous attacks killed 130 persons and wounded nearly 400 others. Just two weeks earlier, the group were similarly able to perpetrate the single most significant attack against commercial aviation in over a decade. A bomb placed on a Russian chartered flight exploded shortly after departing Sharm el-Sheikh, killing all 224 persons on board. The ongoing threat that ISIS evidently continues to pose, despite the dismantling of its caliphate, should make us very circumspect about any conception we may have of fully understanding ISIS's capabilities and intentions, much less the security challenges that it will continue to present after the falls of Mosul and Raqqa. Because of ISIS's emergence and Al-Qaeda's stubborn resilience, today we arguably face the most parlous security environment since the period immediately following the September 11, 2001 attacks. With serious threats emanating from not one, but two terror terrorist movements who both have cultivated a myriad of branches and affiliates, thus enhancing their capabilities and ensuring their longevity. Their respective harnessing and exploitation of social media has played a significant role in fostering this lamentable situation. ISIS, alas, is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. Some two years before the 2015 Paris attacks, ISIS had built an external operations network in Europe that largely escaped notice. Known as the Amman al-Karji, or simply as the Emni, or the Omni, the respective Turkish and Arab rendering of the word Omniat, or security service, this unit appears to function independently of the group's waning military and territorial fortunes. For instance, U.S. intelligence and defense officials, quoted by Rukmini Kalamaki in her revealing August 2016 New York Times article, believe that ISIS had already sent hundreds of operatives into the European Union with hundreds more having been dispatched to Turkey as well. If accurate, this investment of operational personnel ensures that ISIS will retain an international terrorist strike capability on some level, irrespective of its battlefield reverses in Syria and Iraq. ISIS's leader, Abu, Baghdad, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, had already instructed potential foreign fighters who were unable to travel to the caliphate to instead emigrate, emigrate to other vilayets where ISIS's branches are located. This suggests that these other branches will likely develop their own external operations capabilities, independent of the parent organization, and present significant future threats themselves, much as Al-Qaeda's franchises have over the past decade in Yemen, North Africa, and South Asia, among other places. The alleged involvement of ISIS's Libyan branch in last May's horrific bombing of a Manchester concert venue points to the realization of al-Baghdadi's diktat. Indeed, according to a National Counterterrorism Center report issued in August 2016, ISIS had already established 
at least 18 such branches throughout the world, most recently in the Philippines, Afghanistan, and Indonesia. Moreover, in addition to the presumed sleeper cells that ISIS has seeded throughout Europe, there is the further problem of at least some of the estimated 7,000 European foreign fighters returning home. They're only a fraction of the nearly 40,000 persons from over 120 countries throughout the world who have trained in Syria and Iraq. What this means is that in little more than four years, ISIS's international cadre surpassed even the most liberal estimates of the number of foreign fighters that the U.S. intelligence community believes journeyed to Afghanistan during the 1980s and the 1990s in order to join al-Qaeda. In other words, far more foreign nationals have been trained by ISIS in Syria and Iraq during the past couple of years than more by al-Qaeda in the dozen or so years leading up to the September 11th attacks. This recreates today the same constellation of organizational capabilities and trained operatives that made al-Qaeda so dangerous 16 years ago. And unlike the comparatively narrow geographical demographics of prior al-Qaeda recruits, ISIS's foreign fighters cadre includes hitherto unrepresented nationalities, such as hundreds of Latin Americans, along with citizens from Mali, Benin, Bangladesh, and the small Caribbean island state of Trinidad and Tobago, among other atypical jihadi recruiting grounds. Meanwhile, the danger from so-called lone wolf attacks, as we saw in New York City on Tuesday, remains. The late ISIS commander, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani's famous September 2014 summons to battle, has hitherto proven far more compelling than al-Qaeda's long-standing efforts, similarly to animate, motivate, and inspire individuals to engage in violence in support of its aims. Exactly 16 years ago, for example, al-Qaeda's current leader and then number two, Ahmed al-Zawahiri, issued an identical call in his treatise titled, Knights Under the Prophet's Banner. Published in a London-based Arabic-language newspaper, it explained that, and I'm quoting, tracking down Americans and the Jews is not impossible. Killing them with a single bullet, a stab, or a device made up of a popular mix of explosives, or hitting them with an iron rod in their homelands is not impossible. Burning down their property with Molotov cocktails is not difficult. With the available means, small groups could prove to be a frightening whore for the Americans and the Jews. But al-Zawahiri was using an anachronistic media platform that itself was in the process of being rendered irrelevant by the basically cost-free, far more immediate and pervasive digital technology of the 21st century. Accordingly, a message printed in an obscure Arabic language newspaper was seen by few and ignored by most. By comparison, Al-Adnani's electronic plea rapidly snowballed and has since continued to gather momentum despite Al-Adnani's death in a US airstrike last year. Al-Adnani's words thus still resonate given the vast power of the internet and especially of social media, thus reaching a far larger audience faster and more effectively, and creating 
a self-sustaining echo chamber that al-Zawahiri could never have even imagined, much less hoped for a decade or so ago. If you were not able to find an IED or a bullet, al-Adnani had declared, then single out the disbelieving American, Frenchman, or any other of their allies. Smash his head with a rock, or slaughter him with a knife, or run over him with your car, or throw him down from a high place, or choke him, or poison him. It is a compelling message that obviously continues to resonate and produce results highly amenable to ISIS and its cause, and indeed ensures ISIS's survival. Utilizing a variety of freely available social networking media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Flickr, among others, terrorists and insurgent groups today have introduced an even more direct and personally intimate form of messaging. ISIS has positioned itself at the forefront of this new revolution in terrorist communications. Indeed, since 2014, it has produced and disseminated a succession of increasingly more heinous and grisly propaganda videos of brutal executions and similar depredations that have captured the attention and galvanized a new generation of terrorist recruits. These videos and their unrestrained exaltation of violence have attracted many more viewers than Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri's comparatively priggish presentations recanting complex theological treatises or imparting didactic, philosophical, and historical lectures. Where Al-Qaeda and its affiliates saw the internet as a place to disseminate material anonymously or meet in quote-unquote dark spaces, Robert Hannigan, the director of the United Kingdom's Government Communications Headquarters, GCHQ, their equivalent of the NSA, notes, ISIS has instead embraced the web as a noisy channel in which to promote itself intimidate people, and radicalize new recruits. ISIS has thus been remarkably effective in its use of these social media to speak to a global audience, thereby completely bypassing and thwarting the traditional media from misinterpreting or otherwise distorting ISIS's core message. A common ISIS propaganda sorry, a common ISIS propaganda mantra, therefore, is don't hear about us, hear from us. These social media platforms facilitate both ubiquitous and real-time communication between like-minded radicals with would-be recruits and potential benefactors, the phenomena now described are known as narrowcasting. Also called niche marketing or target marketing, Gabby Weinman, the renowned Israeli terrorist communications expert, explains, narrowcasting aims media messages at specific segments of the public, defined by characteristics such as values, preferences, demographic attributes, or location. Ease, interactivity, networking, reach, frequently, usability, stability, immediacy, publicity, and permanence are among the benefits of, for terrorist groups like ISIS who have nimbly adopted these technologies for their own nefarious purposes. I don't think it is far-fetched to say an unnamed American intelligence officer commented in a May 26 article detailing ISIS's mastery of digital media and technology that the Internet is a major reason why ISIS is both so successful and so worldly.
which I think is absolutely right. ISIS fighters in Syria and Iraq, accordingly, have individually, or have individually amassed thousands of followers on platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. They communicated with their audiences, often on a daily basis, and sometimes multiple times each day, providing first-hand, immediate accounts of heroic battles and more mundane daily activities, making jihad accessible and comprehensible on a uniquely intimate and personal basis. These fighters invited, motivated, animated, and summoned their digital media followers and friends and other online contacts to come to Syria and Iraq and partake of the holy war against the apostate regimes of Bashar al-Assad and Haider al-Abadi. Blatant sectarian messages, coupled with divinely ordained, clarion calls to resist Persian domination and decisively affect the outcome of the eternal struggle between the Sunni and Shia, and the latter's Alawite satraps provided additionally compelling incentives. Indeed, a 2014 ISIS recruitment video circulated via social media featured heavily armed militants with distinctive British and Australian accents, trumpeting the virtues of jihad and the ineluctable religious imperative of joining the caravan of martyrs. Through these voices, the group was able to tailor its message to, specific tar to specifically target audiences back in these fighters' own neighborhoods, schools, clubs, community centers, and mosques. Whereas the older versions of terrorist websites effectively were waiting for their visitors to arrive, Gabi Weiman argues, a social networking approach allows terrorists to reach their target audiences and virtually knock on their doors. ISIS's unbridled visual depictions of particularly gruesome executions and other wanton acts of violence galvanize the attention of this select audience and beseech them to come join ISIS's struggle. A new generation of celebrity fighters, accordingly, has been created to facilitate and sustain this process. Ultraviolence, as Jessica Stern and J.M. Berger term this phenomenon, sold well with the target demographic of foreign fighters, angry, maladjusted young men whose blood stirred at images of grisly beheadings and the crucifixion of so-called apostates. Other types of appeals, utilizing more traditional messages intended for more mainline religious audiences, have also been repeatedly used by ISIS to target this entirely different demographic. Familiar historical and theological references are evoked for this particular audience's consideration, and specific solicitations are directed to the descendants of pious families of ancient respected religious lineage and stature. ISIS propagandists also portray the organization as messengers and executors of apocalyptic prophecies, promising the imminence of an inevitable clash between the forces of good and evil in an epic decisive battle as part of a compelling narrative with which to attract potential recruits. These themes both resonate with and have a very powerful effect on their intended audiences. According to Will McCants, ISIS's eschatological arguments have infused the group with new, newfound momentum, producing what he describes as an inrush of foreign fighters to Syria many of them seeking a role in the end-time drama. For terrorists today, the advantages of these new social media 
are thus as profound as they are manifold. It is therefore also not surprising to find that all of Al-Qaeda's most important affiliates or franchises, Al-Shabaab, Ansar al-Sharia, the Abdullah Azam brigades, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, and the Afghan Taliban, among others, all have Twitter accounts on which they regularly tweet. In fact, during its lethal assault on Nairobi, Kenya's Westgate shopping center in September 2013, Al-Qaeda Somali branch, Al-Shabaab, provided live, ongoing commentary of the attack over Twitter. In this respect, it should be noted that while ISIS has dominated the headlines and preoccupied our attention for the past four years, Al-Qaeda has been, meanwhile, quietly rebuilding and marshalling its resources for the continuation of its 20-year-long struggle. Indeed, its presence in Syria should be regarded as just as dangerous and even more pernicious than that of ISIS. The priority that Al-Qaeda attaches to Syria may be seen in the special messages conveyed in, in February and June 2012, respectively, by al-Zawahiri and the late Abu Yahya al-Libi in support of the uprising against the Assad regime, each of them calling upon Muslims in Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, and Lebanon to do everything within their power to assist in the overthrow of the apostate Alawites. The fact that Jabhat al-Nusra or Jabhat Fatah al-Sham or Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, regardless of what it calls itself today, is even more capable than ISIS and a more dangerous long-term threat seems completely immaterial to those across the region who not only actively support and assist it, but actively seek to partner with what they perversely regard as a more moderate and reasonable rival to ISIS. These deliberate obfuscations, both to assume the Al-Qaeda name and portray its most important franchise in a more benign light than that of ISIS, is a reflection of a calculated strategic choice made by al-Zawahiri at a pivotal moment in al-Qaeda's history. In 2013, he instructed the movement's fighters to avoid mass casualty operations in order not to cause the death of Muslim civilians and innocent women and children. At a time when ISIS was stunning the West with one atrocity after another, all staged for maximum, maximum effect on social media, al-Zawahiri's move was a brilliant strategic choice. The legacy of this edict is evident in a tweet by a Dutch fighter belonging to what was then called Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda's arm in Syria, who eagerly reminded his followers a couple of years ago that unlike ISIS, quote-unquote, al-Qaeda focuses mostly on political and military targets instead of civilians, close quote. It is thus able, or al-Qaeda is thus able, to present itself paradoxically as moderate extremists an ostensibly more palatable rival to ISIS. Across the region, a combination of individual sympathizers and malignant government officials not only quietly support al-Qaeda, but have come to see the group as a partner. This development may be seen as fitting neatly into al-Zawahiri's broader strategy of letting ISIS take all the heat and absorb all the blows from the coalition arrayed against it, while al-Qaeda patiently rebuilds its military strength and basks in this paradoxical cachet as moderate extremists in contrast to the unconstrained ISIS. 
anyone inclined to be taken in by this ruse would do well to heed the admonition of Theopadnos, also known as Peter Theocurtus, the American journalist who spent two years in Syria as a hostage of Jabhat al-Nusra, al-Qaeda. Padnos related how, and I'm quoting him, the Nusra front higher-ups were inviting Westerners to the jihad in Syria, not so much because they needed more foot soldiers. They didn't. But because they want to teach the Westerners to take the struggle into every neighborhood and subway back home. Finally, the importance of Syria to Al-Qaeda's plans may be seen in the members of the group's senior command who have operated there in recent years. Musin al-Fadli, a bin Laden intimate who until his death from a U.S. airstrike in 2015 had commanded the Khorasan group, Al-Qaeda's elite forward-based operational arm in Syria is a case in point. Haider Kirkan, a Turkish national and long-standing senior Al-Qaeda commander, had been sent back to his homeland, presumably by bin Laden himself, in 2010. His orders were to build an infrastructure in the region to facilitate the movement of key, person, key Al Qaeda personnel hiding in Pakistan's federally administered tribal area in order to escape the escalation of drone strikes ordered by President Obama. According to the Pentagon, Kir Khan was actively planning these attacks when he was killed last year in a U.S. airstrike in Idlib, Syria. And in late 2015, Al Zawahiri dispatched. Saif al-Adl, Al-Qaeda's most experienced and battle-hardened senior commander, to Syria, in order to oversee the group's interests there. With this senior command structure in place, Al-Qaeda is thus well-positioned to exploit ISIS's weakening military position and territorial losses, and once again, in its pretensions, regain the preeminent position at the vanguard of the Salafi jihadi movement Al-Qaeda once possessed. ISIS, in any event, could no longer compete with Al-Qaeda in terms of influence, reach, manpower, and cohesion. In only one domain is ISIS currently stronger than its rival, the ability to mount spectacular terrorist strikes in Europe. And this is only because Al-Qaeda has apparently decided for the time being to restrain this type of operation. In sum, while ISIS has consumed our attention these past three years, Al-Qaeda has knitted together a global movement of some two dozen local franchises. In this respect, the movement remains just as ambitious and dangerous as ISIS. Al-Qaeda, for instance, is entrenched in Libya, where groups such as Ansar al-Sharia and the Benghazi Defense Brigades, as well as the Shura Councils in Benghazi, Darna, and Sirte, advance the parent movement's interests. Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb is meanwhile active in surrounding countries, targeting Western aid workers and tourists, and is itself credited with over 250 attacks in 2016 alone. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, along the movement's most threatening and consequential franchise, now controls ports and highways along Yemen's coastline, ensuring itself a continuous source of revenue from smuggling that is used to co-opt local communities through the provisions of goods and services that the shattered central government can no longer provide. Not surprisingly, AQAP's ranks have quadrupled in the past two years. Al-Shabaab in Somalia has similarly expanded and regained lost momentum and as, as it has beaten back attempts by, the, by ISIS to challenge Al-Qaeda's position in East Africa. 
and together with its Taliban allies in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda has re-established a presence in nearly half of that country's territory. The movement has made new inroads in Bangladesh and recently added a new franchise dedicated to the liberation of Kashmir. In all, Al-Qaeda now has tens of thousands of fighters, with at least 20,000 men under arms in Syria alone, another 4,000 in Yemen, and 7,000 in Somalia, according to a variety of authoritative sources. Okay, let me now uh, wrap up and conclude. Looking to the immediate future, ISIS's continuing setbacks and serial weakening arguably create the conditions where some reconciliation with Al-Qaeda might yet be effective. Efforts to reunite have been continuous from both sides, virtually from the time of ISIS's expulsion from the Al-Qaeda fold in 2014. Regardless of how it might occur, any kind of reconciliation between ISIS and Al-Qaeda or reamalgamation would profoundly change the current conflict and result in a significantly escalated threat of foreign fighter terrorist operations in the West. But regardless of ISIS's recent military reversals and territorial losses, the fact remains that it has incontestably reshaped the nature of both terrorist communications and operations these past three years. This suggests that its impact will be felt and its influence will continue for a long time. Terrorism from this enemy in the past came in either one of two forms. The first entailed the long-established, directly controlled, and tightly orchestrated operation involving trained terrorists with an identifiable command, control, and communication chain. While the second embodied the more recent phenomena of lone wolf terrorism, individuals without any prior formal connection with the terrorist entity who via social media and other communications are radicalized and encouraged to commit acts of violence independently of, but nonetheless on behalf of or in service to, the aims of the terrorist organization inspiring them. ISIS, however, has now perfected a third option, a hybrid option, of the enabled attacker. Although this person conforms to the lone wolf model, the terrorist command and control structure in this instance directly furnishes this independent operative with very specific targeting instructions, along with accompanying detailed intelligence, both to promote an attack against a particular target and also to ensure the likelihood of its success. Thus, what the FBI calls the flash to bang, the time that it takes a person from, from the radicalization process to actually picking up a bomb or throwing a, or placing a bomb, sorry, actually picking up a gun or placing a bomb has been tremendously reduced, making it far more difficult for intelligence and law enforcement authorities to identify, interdict, and thwart a plot. In the final analysis, a terrorist movement's longevity ultimately depends upon its ability to recruit new members as well as to appeal to an expanding pool of both active supporters and passive sympathizers. The role of effective communication in this process is pivotal, ensuring the continued flow of fighters into the movement, binding supporters more tightly to it, and drawing sympathizers and their financial resources more deeply into its orbit. Without communication, 
Alex Schmidt and Yanni de Graaff presciently argued more than 30 decades ago, there can be no terrorism. The revolution in terrorist communications utilizing social media has hitherto facilitated this process in unimaginable ways. That it has unfolded so rapidly and become so ubiquitous ensures that terrorist reliance on and exploitation of digital technology is certain to continue. Its immensely appealing capabilities and technologically dynamic products will likely become increasingly more sophisticated in quality, content, rapidity, intimacy, and transmission capacity, and more numerous and pervasive than they already are. The implications of this phenomena are perhaps only now beginning to be understood. What is clear, though, is that as terrorist communications continue to change and evolve, so will the nature of terrorism itself. While one cannot predict what new forms and dimensions terrorism will assume during the rest of the 21st century, this evolutionary process will not only continue, but will be abetted and accelerated by new communications technologies, much as, ha much has, as, or much as has already been the case over the past century. Thank you very much.